Um, no, I'm excited because today we get to cover a topic that is very near and dear to the heart of Jesus and very near and dear to, to my heart too. Um, I was saved at Applegate Christian Fellowship while taking communion. So this topic is pretty, um, is pretty important and pretty sweet for me. This is the topic in the scripture that we get to touch on today. Uh, so if you haven't gotten there yet, chapter 14 of the Gospel of Mark, if you want to turn there, 14, 14th chapter of Mark, we're going to go through the uh, verses 12 through 16. Mark 12 through 26. 12 through 26. I said 16. I meant 26. Sorry. And uh, while we're all getting there and uh, getting ready, let's, let's go to the Lord. Father, I just want to pray a simple prayer right now. And I just ask that your power would go forth from your word, your gospel, in my weakness. Father, would you open our minds, our eyes, our hearts to believe and to really soak up and, and marinate in your truth and in your good news. And we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. It's good to be forgiven, isn't it? It's good to, be, to have a right standing with God, to be in the right place, to have an expectation of heaven, to be justified, to be spared from hell, to be on the winning side of things. You know, Satan and all of the wicked will be cast into the lake of fire for all eternity, but us, we have a promise that we have a better future. It's good to be in the truth. It's good to know the wisdom of God, to understand what is foolish in the world and be able to discern and say, I don't want to be a part of that. But did you notice that all of these things have actually not a whole lot to do with who you are as a person to your core? All of these things are awesome. We treasure these things. These are good. This is good news. But all of these things are your standing, where you are, not necessarily who you are. You know, it does speak of part of our identity. You know, when we say we're, we're justified, we are declared righteous. That is part of our identity, but it's only part of our identity. You know, being with the saints and being with Jesus and being on the right side only speaks of where you are, not who you are to the core. It doesn't speak to your nature. What, what sparks joy in you? What sparks anger in you? What makes you tick? What is the thing that you, that you live for, that drives you, that your desires, that, that is deep within you? See, God was never interested in just saving us to change our destination. He was never interested in, in saving us just so we could, in essence, put on Jesus' clothes and take on the employment of a job of a Christian and do the things 
that Christians do. God was always interested in regenerating and renewing and recreating us from within, creating new creatures, sons and daughters, those who have the same nature as him, as our father. Not just trained to do righteous things, but loving righteousness as he does. Second Peter 1, 3, and 4 says this. His divine power has granted, to, uh, granted us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and excellence, by which he has granted to us his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. God has provided us a pretty awesome means to continually partake in the divine nature of Jesus. And one of them is communion. One of them is the Lord's Supper, as it's called. And we get to do that this morning. The Lord's Supper, like I said, also called communion. Catholics call it the Eucharist. It's one of two sacraments. Um, baptism being the other one. And so baptism more signifies your initial union with Christ and your union with him in his death and burial and resurrection, while the Lord's Supper signifies our continual union as a church. Now, I don't, I don't know if I've ever thought about this before I start studying this, but as I was studying this, I was realizing that Baptism seems to be a sign primarily of your change in standing, while the Lord's Supper seems to be a sign of your change of nature. And I'll get into why I think that. But one, one seems to signify justification. The other seems to signify regeneration. And regeneration is just another word for being born again. I believe that the Holy Spirit this morning wants us to partake in the nature of Jesus. He wants us to um, escape, when, while we do that, to escape from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire, because of sin nature. And I think that there's three things in this passage that invite us to partake in the nature of Jesus, three aspects of Jesus' nature, his familial affection, his vigilant detection of sin, and his joyful expectation of the future. And if you're taking notes, I'll say that again, familial affection, vigilant detection, and joyful expectation. Let's start off by reading our passage like I said, Mark chapter 14, and we'll just read verses 12 through 16. On the first day of unleavened bread, when they sacrificed the Passover lamb, his disciples said to him, where will you have us go to prepare for you that to eat the Passover? And he sent two of his disciples and said to them, 
Go into the city, and a man carrying a jar of water will meet you. Follow him. And wherever he enters, say to the master of the house, The teacher says, Where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And he will show you a large upper room, furnished and ready. There, prepare for us. And the disciples set out and went to the city and found it just as he had told them. And they prepared the Passover. And one of the best things about the Lord's Supper is that it's connected to and has its foundation in and rooted in the Passover. 1,600 years before this, God delivered his people in what we know of that's called the Exodus. So let's, uh, let's define Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I think it would be important to really understand what is happening here. So the beginning of Exodus, you see that Joseph um, was, he was a ruler in Egypt and he, was, he had favor with Pharaoh. And he had brought all of his brothers into Egypt there. So all, tri- all 12 tribes of Israel were there. And they grew in number and they multiplied greatly and they grew in strength. And Pharaoh looked at them and, and he felt threatened by them. So for that reason, he put taskmasters over them so that they would afflict them with burdens and kind of thinking that it would keep them in check so they wouldn't grow too too large and overtake him. So he did that. And and actually, the passage says in in Exodus that they actually grew a number even more. And so then he, he afflicted them even more after that, all because he was threatened that they might join his enemy kingdoms and became more harsh and more harsh with them. And in the 23rd verse of Exodus chapter 2, it says this, the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery and cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God and God heard their groaning and God remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac, and with Jacob. God saw the people of Israel And God knew. So God heard the cry of his people. And then he acted upon that. He called Moses and he set him apart as a prophet. And he sent Moses to Pharaoh with a message. You remember that, what that message was. Let my people go. And Pharaoh hardened his heart and refused. He became stubborn and he refused. Every single time he went to him, He wouldn't do it. So God used Moses to bring plagues upon the people of Egypt. So first, the river of blood, then frogs, then gnats, then flies, then the the livestock died, then boils, then hailstones, then locusts, then darkness, and then the final plague being the death of every firstborn in the land. Before the 10th plague, though, God established this new tradition that the people of Israel would carry out up until the present day of our passage, and that was the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And it was to prepare them for the Exodus. Now, he said, I want you to do this as you prepare, you know, this unleavened bread. I want you to have everything set up quickly so that you'll be ready to take off once 
the final plague, and he predicted it. He said that when the final plague comes, Pharaoh's going to release you. And on this night, when this plague was going to come, and death was going to come upon all the firstborn in the land, the people of Israel, all the households, would, were told that at twilight, they were to sacrifice this lamb, and that they would take the blood of this lamb, and they would wipe it on their doorposts and on the lintel. And they would do that as a sign that they have trusted in Yahweh, God's provision for a sacrificial um, atonement. And so they did this. They, they, did, they did that very thing, and, and, they, and they, uh, their bread was kept unleavened as a sign of uh, unleavened bread was a sign of uh, removing the removal of sin. But the night came when God brought this tenth plague. And when God saw the blood on the doorposts, he passed over that house. And for some of you that know this story well, um, this, is not, this is not any new information for you, but uh, for some of you that don't, this is really important to understand because it is woven into the culture of the Jews at this time. And every time they did this and they went through this, this tradition, it reminded them of God's compassion to hear them and God's power to deliver them from their enemies. And, and they would remember God, our God, Yahweh, is a God of, of compassion and a God who delivers us. So it came, all those in the land that did not put their faith in Yahweh through this sacrificial lamb, all of their firstborn died, and Pharaoh did let them go. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread, shortly after the Exodus, God established this tradition where they would spend seven days making sure there was no leaven in their bread, and at the end of the seventh day, or at the seventh day, they had a feast. So fast forward 1,600 years, and here we are in our text and in our, the story of our passage here. They're still keeping the Passover. They're still dedicated to this tradition. And the expectation for Jesus and his disciples was that they would be doing it too. So in our story, we have a conversation that comes up very naturally um, where are we going to prepare the Passover? So Jesus gives them specifics about the exact location of where they're going to eat the Passover lamb. And it says that he sent two of his disciples from other gospels. We know that this was Peter and John, um, which makes perfect sense because Peter, as we know, was the a primary source for Mark as he's writing down this gospel. So that's why we have like really good details here. And Jesus says that when you go into the city, you're going to meet a man holding a jar of water, which apparently it wasn't customary for a man to hold a jar of water, uh, that it was more customary for women at that time. So you have somebody that's standing out in the open with this jar of water so that he will stand out so, the, so, so that these disciples would be able to recognize, oh, well, this is the guy I'm supposed to talk to. And then he says, well, when you meet him, then go into that household, and then I have a message for you 
for the master of the house. Here's your message. The teacher says, where is my guest room where I may eat the Passover with my disciples? And something very cool that I want to just point out real quick is that it says that, that they found it just as he had told them. Side note, you will always find it just as Jesus tells you. Whatever he says, however he describes the world to you, trust his word. You can bank on it. You can know exactly when he says, and he says things are a certain way, you can trust it, that it is going to be exactly as he said it's going to be. So this, this scene where he sends these disciples in, and it, you know, it's really interesting, not only because it's like a mission impossible kind of a, a scenario where they're like giving these really mysterious details to, to follow the, the directions, but what's interesting here, and I, and I thank uh, Tim Keller for this in, in his book, is that what we know of the Passover was that it was a household thing. All of the households would have a lamb, and they would prepare it, and they would kill it, and they would eat it, and, they, and they, this was a household thing. And here we have Jesus and his disciples meeting in an upper room, almost as if. Jesus is establishing a a household of sorts. Almost almost like he's establishing a new family unit. And he was so serious about this. He was so serious about meeting with his disciples on this night that he planned it meticulously down to the, the, the very details of someone holding a jar of water and all those things. It was interesting because when he sent these two, that kept everybody else in the dark. And I'm pretty sure that that from the reading of this, 10 out of the the 12 were completely in the dark about this this location, where it was going to be. So Jesus was very uh, meticulous and and serious about it. He was going to make sure that this happened on this night when the, the Passover lamb was sacrificed. It was very important to him. And we're told in Luke chapter 22 and verse 15 that when Jesus finally sat down with his disciples, he said, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. This was so important to him that he made sure that this would happen. And and, and like we know that the Pharisees and the religious rulers and Judas himself were out to kill him right now. So almost literally all the powers of hell could not stop this meeting from happening. He was going to make sure that it happened, and it did. But, he, but the reason why it was so important for him is because he wanted to meet with his brothers before he suffered. John 17 gives us a little bit of a, a glimpse into Jesus' love for his disciples, his affection for them his familial affection for them. And I encourage you to go read uh, John chapter 17, verses 1 through 19 on your own, but I'll just read verses 10 through 13. This is Jesus praying for his disciples. He says, All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. 
Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them will be lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures may be fulfilled. But now I'm coming to you. So he's preparing for his death and for his resurrection. He says, now I'm coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So do you see that, like, sharing in what Christ enjoys, my fulfillment in them? He had such a deep affection for his brothers. He loved reclining with them in homes, sharing meals with them, and breaking bread with them. Matter of fact, this breaking bread with his disciples, and not just the 12, but all of his disciples. But he was so, this was such a staple for him that you know the story in the road to Emmaus, where he's walking with two disciples and he's completely concealed in his identity. They have no idea who they're walking and talking with. This is after he rose. And they're walking and talking, and, and, and finally they get to the house where they're going to go, and they sit down, and, and what it says is that the moment that they recognized Jesus wasn't because their, their vision was, was changed or that he changed his appearance. It was that he did, the, he did this one thing that they recognized, and it was that when he took bread and he broke it and he gave thanks and he gave it to them, and it says, their eyes were opened and they recognized him. Not because he changed his appearance, but because that thing that he did that they knew so well, that he did so often, that he loved to do with his disciples, the breaking of the bread with them. And they go out and they're like, we saw Jesus and and we recognized him in the breaking of the bread. So this is what Jesus established in his church. This familial affection, this this type of bond that Christians have. In our bond with him and our bond with one another, it was all established by Jesus. And Jesus was real with his disciples. He uh, let his hair down, so to speak. When he hung out with them, he let them know him. And he became the source of our bond. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 17, it says, Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body. For we all partake of the one bread. He is the source of our familial affection. You know, partaking of one bread, the modern way to say that would be to share in. We all share in this bread together. And you guys, uh, most of us have grown up in some sort of a family, and we understand, you know, what it means to share or the lack thereof. But you're forced to share everything in a family. You have your time, you have your money, you have your resources, you have food. And the, the type of entity that Jesus created is a household family entity where, where we share. 
you know, when he broke bread here on this night and he divided it up, it was one loaf. And he gave, gave it to his disciples to all share in as a family. Uh, so another side note, don't, don't be the type of sharer that I am most of the time. I have a reputation in my household where um, I don't share well. And it isn't because I purposefully don't share well. It's that I'm just, I just get lost in the moment. And uh, so, like, in the instances where, like, you pass the plate or whatever and you take some and pass it down, unfortunately, I'm the type of person most of the time where it's like I forget that the next person also is supposed to eat this thing. So they've learned, especially my wife has learned, uh, that it's better to divide the portions at the beginning. <laughs> and here's dad's portion, okay? Um, but don't, le- don't be that kind of shared. You know, take the example of Jesus, our elder brother, who presides over the household. And he, he gave of himself completely. And there's plenty of him to go around. Um, what's awesome, too, is that Jesus, as he presides over this, he is, as Hebrews 1.3 says, the exact imprint of his nature. Jesus is the exact imprint of the nature of his father. And he's the one presiding over this. That'll teach me to fidget and touch my face. Think about Jesus's primary mode with his disciples. It was, it wasn't like, you know, synagogue where they dressed up nice and put on their, their best face and, um, you know, wore, wore their, their, their best robes. It was real. It, it was in, in the, in the dirty, real messiness of life. It was in homes. It was breaking bread. It was reclining together. It was walking through trials together. It was doing life together. And I say this because, you know, church environments, I think, can get off track really easy. I think we can show up and think that, you know, this is the place where we, we, we act all good. Like everything has to seem all good. And, and we think that, you know, when we show up, we have to put on that, that face. And, and that changes the environment. You know, we, we don't have to show up to, to act like we're joyful when we're not. We can come and just like you do in a family, you walk into the room and, you know, most of the time, you know that you're accepted. You don't have to pretend. And sometimes I think church environments turn into less, are less like families and more like fandom, where we gather and we're, it feels a little bit more like, a, like we're fans at a concert or we're at a conference. We, we are people with similar interests, but we're, we're strangers. That's, uh, that's not the tone that Jesus set. The tone that Jesus set is familial affection, where we know each other. And, you know, that means that we have to allow each other. We have to, uh, I have to allow you to know me. I have to be here. I have to be honest about where I'm really at. 
And I have to trust people that when I do that, that you're not going to judge me, that you're, that you're going to walk through this with me. That's how we all have to walk into this thing called church, this family. I know that's not easy. I know that trust is earned. I know that trust happens over time. But that's exactly how it is in a family, isn't it? Over time, you begin to grow to trust one another. So we need to let Jesus set the tone for this familial affection. And I'm so grateful for this church. Because, you know, when I walk in here, yeah, there's a lot of people that I don't know. But there's so many of you that I'm getting to know. There's so many of you that I've gotten to know that I've got to share some life with you. And that I've heard from many of you that, that when you, you know, you experienced this church, that you felt that. Like, that's what you enjoyed about Philippi. So I'm so grateful for that. And I want to continue in that direction here. So we're also told that the, in the book of Acts that they continued with this pattern of this uh, breaking bread with one another and in their homes. And in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, it says that um, they continued in the apostles' teaching break, the breaking of bread and the prayers. There's a, in Greek, there's a, uh, what's called a definite article in front of each one of those, which basically translates to the word the. So the apostles' teaching the breaking of bread, and the prayers. So these were like things that were very well known to the early church. Acts chapter 20, a little bit further along in the early church, it says, as, um, as Luke in, in Acts was telling a story about something that happened, he started it off with this. He says, on the first day of the week when we were gathered together to break bread. So he speaks of it as if it's like, oh, this is just what we did all the time. So that was the environment and the tone that Jesus set. But on this side of heaven, on this side of the kingdom, there's always going to be something that is a threat to our familial affection with one another, our bond. You know, Jesus here in this story uh, has that very threat in front of him. And so I think it would be important for us to pay attention how he handles it. You know, when, when uh, a threat comes to him um, in this situation, I want you to watch very closely. Does he say, you know, it's all good, join the party? Does he say, good vibes only, and I, I can't even do that right now? You know, does he say, um, you know, get him, burn him at the stake? Like, he doesn't do any of those things. But, Let's watch how he does. And I think that we'll see that he is pouring out his grace while at the same time he's vigilant in his detection. And the the, uh, other gospels tell us that um, Jesus washed the feet of his disciples before this moment. We're not, that's not recorded in Mark. But it's really important to note. Let's uh, read verses 17 through 21. When it was evening, he came with the twelve. And as they were reclining at table and eating, Jesus said, Truly I say to you, one of you will betray me, one who is eating with me. They began to be sorrowful and to say to him one after another, Is it I? 
He said to them, it is one of the twelve, one of who is dipping bread into the dish with me. For the Son of Man goes as it is written of him. But woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It would have been better for that man if he had not been born. Jesus detected the betrayer. He knew exactly who was going to betray him. And we uh, likely, the reason why he was so secretive and so stealthy about that, the way that he described where they were going to meet, was not only to keep it from the religious leaders, but to keep it from Judas. Because likely Judas wouldn't have any idea where they were going to meet. So once he got in the room, it was like he was locked in the room and couldn't go out and, and rat him out. And when Jesus detected this betrayer, he, 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 he detected this, this sin in the camp. He also, this is very unique to Jesus, he also knew that this meant his journey to the cross. He was not only, uh, he not only had the knowledge that this would happen, he was voluntarily laying his life down as a sacrifice. So while he detected the evil, he also understood that this evil, this very evil, this betrayal would actually lead to the, the good intentions of God to offer the Lamb of God to be slain in the place of sinners. You know, um, one thing that, that, that I wrestle with each time I read this is the passage where it says, for the Son of Man goes as it is written of him, but woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. It's like that, that um, th- those two opposing truths that, w- that we wrestle with all the time. It's the sovereignty of God and the, and the, and the um, responsibility of man. So it says that he will be delivered up according to the, to the foreknowledge and the plan of God, but at the same time, sinful men will be held accountable for, and those who put him to death will be held accountable. It's a mystery. We can't fully wrap our minds around these two things, but the Bible always teaches these two things, that it's just as much as it's a mystery that Jesus is fully God, fully man, and we can't really wrap our minds around what that even means. It's a mystery that God is fully sovereign over man's choices, over man's sinfulness, but at the same time, man is fully responsible for those choices that they make. But it says that, woe to that man by whom the Son of Man is betrayed. Now consider how heinous this betrayal is. I mean, Jesus' goodness and Jesus' familial affection was poured out on Judas, too. And, and over and over and over, while, while he was walking with Jesus, Jesus was continually doing things like what he did right before this and like washing his feet. We, uh, as far as we know, G- Judas was there and, and got his feet washed by Jesus. But that like all the more that makes the betrayal so crazy and, and, and so unfathomable that you could turn from such a good God and that's what sin is. It's so irrational. 
And the reality uh, of this side of the kingdom and this side of heaven is that there's always going to be a snake in the garden. You know, even in the Garden of Eden, which was this perfect environment, right? There was the snake. He was, he was there. The snake in the garden, spoiling all that's good. And that's what sin does. It ruins everything. It really does. And that's why we can take on the nature and why Jesus wants us to take on his nature of being able to discern and detect that which always ruins the good. But sin isn't just this outside thing, right? This outside force that comes at us. It's actually a choice that we make. It is what we do. And it's what Jesus said. And we actually studied this earlier in Mark. He says, from within, out of the heart of a, of a man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. Jesus says all these evil things come from within and they defile a person. So it's the nature of a person is the issue. It's the nature of the person that produces these things. So our vigilant detection in sharing in Jesus' nature is detecting the very things in us that we produce that ruin the good. I think it's really interesting. Jesus actually set the tone for this uh, self-examination. Notice when he asks them, or when he tells them that one of you will betray me. He doesn't come right out and, 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 and point out and single out Judas. He actually just says, one of you. And, and their response was to, to ask one by one, is it I? Is it I, Lord? It says they were sorrowful. You know what that tells us? They believed Jesus. They just simply believed him. He said, it's going to be one of you. So they just were like, okay, well, it's going to be one of us. And since they had no clue that it was Judas, I mean, another gospel tells us that even after Satan literally entered Judas in this moment, they had no idea. They were completely clueless. He left to go betray him, and they were like, oh, I wonder if he, Jesus sent him off to to, you know, deal with something uh, with, with the money or something. They had no idea. So in the minds of the disciples with this question, they truly were like, is it I? Is it in me to betray my Lord? Could it be me? So Jesus actually set this tone of self-examination. And I think it actually, we have good proof that this same tone carried on through church history and it has weight for us today. I'm gonna read for you and you, you can actually turn there. It's gonna be a little bit long of a reading. So 1 Corinthians chapter 11, chapter, seven, or chapter 11, verses 17 through 32. Here we have a church that, number one, yes, they were doing right by carrying on the tradition and carrying on the tone that Jesus set of uh, weaving the Lord's Supper into their gatherings, but they derailed severely. 
and to the point to where the, the derailing led to quite the train wreck of what their gatherings looked like. So like I said, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verses 17 through 32, this is the description that we have of what Paul said to the church in Corinth. He says, starting in verse 17, but in the, be- in the following instructions, I do not commend you. Because when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat, for in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal, one goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat or drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I received from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And here, uh, focus in here in verse 27. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Now listen to his, his antidote, his, his answer to that. Verse 28, let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill and some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are judged by the Lord. Uh, when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned with the, Lord, with the world. So what is it that Paul defines as the worthy manner? You know, a lot of times, I think more often, uh, what I've heard as the, the kind of explanation of the unworthy manner is that an unbeliever shouldn't take of, of the elements. Now that's, that's true because obviously an unbeliever doesn't understand and has not confessed that they are, in fact, the, the sinner that Jesus died to save. But this context, though, is to Christians. It's to the church in Corinth. And so, so the unworthy manner here that he points to, he says, let a person examine him, himself then and so eat the bread and drink the cup. We see the definition of worthy manner. It's really to, to take it in and examine yourself through this. This is the tone that Jesus set. And to be vigilant in our detection of what ruins the good in our lives, in our attitudes, in our affections. And not just the Lord's table, but I would say especially the Lord's table to to use it as a time of examination. And I would say the reason for that, 
I think, I think the Lord really did design it that way. Because when you have the elements in your hands, you have the bread and you have the juice or the wine. It is so tangible. It is such a tangible opportunity for you to go, wow, I've blown it. Uh, my sin has corrupted me. But his body was broken for that sin. And his blood was spilled for that sin. I think it's a perfect opportunity for you to look at the goodness and kindness and love of God right in your hands and go, oh, the kindness of the Lord then leads you to repentance. How much easier is it to repent and turn from your sin when you have the love of God before you, the love and and the, the sacrificial lamb on your mind that was sacrificed in your place? And lastly, so I think partaking of his familial affection and his, uh, his detection of sin, but also his expectation, um, his expectation of a future, his expectation of a future reception. And I wanted to use the word election but because it rhymes with... Uh, detection and affection, but I didn't want to go all Calvinist on you. No, it's because it's not in the passage. (laughs) Um, If it was, I would be happy to go all Calvinist on you. Just fine. Um, So in verses 22 through 26, let's follow along where we're given the rest of the story here. Back to Mark chapter 14, verses 23 through 26. As they were eating, he took bread, and after blessing it, broke it, and gave it to them, and said, Take, this is my body. And he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank of it. And he said to them, This is my blood. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many. Truly I say to you, I will not drink again of the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. Verse 26, and when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, here we have a a beautiful tie-in. The Old Testament past and the New Testament future, which is here in our passage, and the future, uh, the future feast. All of those are all wrapped into one moment here. We have the, the, the Passover, 1,600 years in the past. We have um, the present of the Lord's Supper, and we have the future kingdom. And I think Jesus wanted to intentionally anchor his disciples and to anchor us in the joy and the expectation of a future promise. You know, earlier in, in the passage that we read at the beginning, it, was, it said that it was through the promises that we partake of the divine nature. And Jesus anchored us in that. And this is so interesting that as Jesus was preparing for his death, it was the worst possible brutal death that anybody could ever go through, not just because the Romans had, had 
devise this, this horrific suffering with, with crucifixion. But Jesus in particular, it says that he was unrecognizable. He was beaten so brutally. And in the face of this, you have a Jesus who is joyfully looking to the future with expectation. It says, for the joy that he set before him, he endured the cross. And he wrapped that into this night and in all the things that he wanted his disciples to take away and for us to take away. The hope of a future kingdom where there will be no more need for being vigilantly watchful of what's going to ruin the good anymore. But there's even more hope in this, and we'll begin to wrap it up here. Um, wow, I'm four, four minutes over. I did not time that very well. Uh, there's even more hope in this as you, as you follow along where Jesus says, this is my blood in the covenant. The covenant obviously is a promise, again, um, but if you understand what the covenant is, the new covenant that he's referring to, you have the old covenant, with, which was powerless to change a person, to change a person's nature. It only tells you what is required of you, but doesn't deliver the power to actually carry it out. Well, the new covenant is exactly that. The new covenant is a promise by God that I will change you from the inside out. I will produce a people that with a nature that shares mine, that, that people will, will walk with me. They will, they will obey my statutes and, and, and follow me out of what they love, not necessarily because of what they're told. And since I'm over, I won't read it, but go to Jeremiah 31, 31. And go to Isaiah 36, 25 through 27. These are Old Testament promises where God said, I, I will bring a new covenant. I will replace your heart of stone with, with a heart of flesh. I will cause you to walk in my ways. And the definition of the new covenant is that the law will be put within us. Not necessarily externally imposed upon us, but it will put, be put within us. And we will experience a change of nature. And this is the exact thing that Jesus paid for and purchased. Not just people who, um, who are pardoned uh, from their sin, but people who are rocked by the grace of God so much that it actually makes them want to follow and worship. Not just people who are eternally secure, but eternally minded. Not just people who remove idols from their house, but remove idols from their own heart. And not just people who have to obey, but people who want to obey. That's the glory of the blood of Jesus. It, it far surpasses the, new, the, the original covenant. And it actually accomplishes a change within it actually accomplishes that like a surgeon. It takes out that, that stone heart, that, that heart that produces all the things that Jesus said of sexual morality and theft and murder and adultery and all those things that, that is a part of us and, and comes from our nature. And he changes the nature into a heart that actually has the ability to praise. 
so awesome. Which brings us to the, to the very end here. When it says that they sang a hymn and they went out to the Mount of Olives. That would, would have been the, what was called the Hallel, which just means praise. Again, in the midst of what he knows he's going to experience, this brutal death, he's singing a hymn of praise. You know, this is that joyful expectation that he has that he wants to impart to us. So, in conclusion, and we are going to do that very thing this morning, we are going to take part in the elements and um, I'm, I'm hoping to give you a little bit more time than usual, maybe do it a little bit differently this time. But obviously they're here. Um, we're going to have about five minutes of silence where you go and, and take it on your own. We're not going to uh, take it together all at the same time, just uh, on your own timing. Go ahead, not, not yet right at this moment, but uh, at, at that moment when, uh, after we pray, um, You'll have the chance to just come up when you're ready and you'll have about five minutes and then the worship team will come back up and play another song. And don't feel like when the worship team comes up like you have to be done. Use that time. Um, Move around if you have to. Do some heart work if you have to. Um, Bring this idea of the the nature of Jesus. You know when you take the elements and and you you eat the bread or you eat the, the cracker, and you drink the juice, what you're doing is that you're ingesting these things. And then it just becomes part of you. And our prayer then here would be that, Lord Jesus, you as the unleavened bread and, and, and the, the blood the spot of the spotless lamb, but that would begin to change our nature as we do it and be shaped into his image more and more. So take this opportunity and take, it to, take the opportunity to be honest about where you're at. Take the opportunity to have the goodness of, and the kindness of Jesus move you to repentance. Um, take it as an opportunity to remember where Jesus found you. Um, to remember what he's done in you. And remember that it's a time of of reflection and self-examination to say, Lord, have I, you know, is it in me right now to to betray you? Have I betrayed you in any area? And just take the, the, the tangible elements in your hands to be reminded of the grace, the abundant grace that, is, that has been poured out for us. There's, there's no shortage of this grace. There's nothing that any of you have ever done or could do that could not be covered and forgiven by the blood of Jesus. It means maybe there's somebody here who's like, he can't, God can't forgive me for this thing. Not so. Uh, for those of you who, who don't, know the Lord and you're not a Christian here and and this is kind of new for you, I would say uh, more than just don't take it. I'm going to say if you're, if you know that you're not there and ready to surrender to Jesus today, then don't. But if you're there and the Holy Spirit has brought you to this point to where you're like, all right, 
I'm ready to, I'm ready to surrender to Jesus. And his kindness has led me to repentance for the first time. Then I would say partake. Then I would say come. And I would say tell somebody if that is the case. So after I'm done praying, like I said, take about five minutes. Uh, time on your own. Come when you're ready. Get the elements. And um, we'll spend some time in worship. Let's pray. It is so good to be known by you, Father. It is so good to, to know that we can truly bring ourselves to you. That you know us best and you've loved us perfectly. And that there wasn't a sin that you, you didn't know fully about when you laid your life down for us in our place. I just pray for this moment that we would be able to see your grace for what it really is, amazing, undeserved. And you would stir in your people right now a moment of honesty and praise. And that you would make us a people who just enjoy sharing in your nature and your goodness your righteousness, your kindness. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.